Well, here we are, the Gilbreth Innovation Preschool. You've not been here before? No, but I do know the neighborhood. You could almost walk to the Googleplex from here if people if walked people in. people walked in California. Yeah. Oh, there's the principal. Penelope. What's your last name? Osmar. And my middle name is Innovation. David Allen Greer, pleased to meet you. Dave, good to have you here. And Tammy, hi. Um, I, I generally go by the Lost name cause. Of... She'll call you what she wants. We're so glad to have you here for the annual Winter Festival. The kids so love your podcasts and find them so useful. The kids listen? What would you expect? But this event is really for the parents. Oh my. They think of you two as real innovation disruptors. And this is such a lovely event because we all get to sit in a circle and be grateful for all the innovation that we've seen the past year. It's a real chance to pat ourselves on the back for everything we've been able to disrupt. Oh yes. This is just one of the best. Oh my, we almost walked right past the innovatorium. You two are so interesting to talk to that I forgot where I was. Young innovative minds. Children. Hand up, mouth shut. Young innovators. And of course, parental innovators. And all you other non-family innovators. We are so pleased to have with us today the hosts of How We Manage Stuff. They're going to tell us a story for our annual Winter Innovation Festival. Let me present Dave Greer and Tammy Carlton. I think you all know Tammy's kids who are sitting over there on the left side of the auditorium. Oh, good. A chance to talk about public embarrassment tonight. And so I will give you now the hosts of How We Manage Stuff. When the going gets tough, the tough go programming. This is David Allen Greer and Tamara Carlton with a special edition of How We Manage Stuff. Broadcast live from the Lillian Moeller Gilbreth Preschool for Disruptive Innovation. And it's entitled Songs of Comfort and Joy. Christmas in Texas is not white, but brown. It's the color of that bleached dead grass that shines in the low-hanging sun of December. The days are short, the nights have cold fingers. The harvest is over, the summer is past, and the time of reckoning is at hand. The staff of the UNIVAC office in North Dallas did not quite know how to mark December in 1958. They were new to the region. Immigrants from St. Paul, West Conshohocken, Long Island City, Evanston. They had come to the South one and all, to stake their fortune to the new computer industry. It was a new land for them, a place with strange foods and customs. It was a place far from family and friends. At times, it seemed to be a place far from God. The year had not been good. The office had been operating for nearly 24 months and had yet to show a profit. They were supposed to be selling computer services to the oil industry, but the oil industry seems to have had no real interest in their services. Their only regular customer was an aged oil baron who came to the office on the first of every month to have the UNIVAC compute the most efficient way to refine his crude. Adding to the office's anxiety was a doubt, a fear about the ability of the United States to produce innovative technology. Just 14 months before, the country had seen a Russian satellite reach orbit and an American rocket explode on the pad. More than anything else, the UNIVAC employees wanted to use their computer 
which stood gleaming in its glass-enclosed room, to do something that might advance American science. But no one had been bringing scientific problems to the UNIVAC office. That winter, the most intriguing feature of the machine was the audio output circuit. This hardware had been added to the computer as a troubleshooting device. Each computer console had a small amplifier and loudspeaker connected into a data path within the computer, explained the UNIVAC engineer. When certain test programs were run to check the operation of the computer circuits, the loudspeaker would put out a distinctive series of tones. So one of the UNIVAC staff, a tall, quiet man named John Kamena, decided that he would create musical software, a program that would play Christmas music. He knew nothing about music, but he loved to program, and he knew how to break complicated tasks into simple steps. He created a little program that would generate a sound, a single sound, at the pitch of middle C. It was a beautiful, rhythmic tone, wrote one observer, not unlike an oboe. With the help of a colleague, Kamena created a program that could produce all 12 notes in the Western musical scale, and he developed a simple scheme that would represent melodies by a series of numbers. Others in the office assisted the effort by translating piano scores into mathematical notation. First came Jingle Bells, then O Come All Ye Faithful, and finally, O Holy Night. The music coming from the machine sounds like and is Christmas carols for the slightly astonished reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald. The newspaper reporter arrived on December 23rd and was immediately smitten by what he saw. Univac Scientific is the hit of the season, he wrote. It plays Christmas carols. Cabana was both pleased and frustrated with the publicity. He was grateful that someone acknowledged the office's technical prowess, but he also wanted to see that office succeed in its primary mission, the mission of providing scientific computing services. Do you think you could sort of write something to about how UNIVAC is generally used in education, he pleaded. The American public paid little attention to the musical computer. After all, they had been told that the computer was an electronic brain, and they accepted the fact that such a brain could do almost anything. They didn't see the program as disruptive, because few of them could conceive how they might ever use an electronic brain of their own. Besides, the disruptive music technology of the age was not the computer, but the 45 RPM record. Developed by RCA, it was starting to threaten the conventional technology for reproducing music, the LP, the 12-inch long-playing record that had been introduced by Columbia Broadcasting a decade before. The LP was the technology of New York and Los Angeles. It was the technology of classical music, of Broadway, of Tin Pan Alley. The three best-selling LPs of December 1958 were all soundtracks of musicals that were playing in New York, South Pacific, The Music Man, Gigi. But the 45 was the technology of the hinterland, of folk, of gospel, of rhythm and blues. That year, Sun Records of Memphis had released Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire. The Chess Brothers of Chicago had brought Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good to the and world. And of course, the producer known as David Seville created the Chipmunk song on a 45. And Bobby Darren recorded the novelty hit Splish Splash. Oh dear, but no innovation is universally positive. No, it is not. 
but the 45 generally led the innovation in mid-century music. In the Motor City, Mr. Barry Gordy was creating a record company that would produce a new style of popular music. His record company used an innovative way of mass-producing songs and engaged a new group of talented musicians from the city's churches. But nothing stands still. By the 1970s, the LP had regained a central role in popular music. And in the 1980s, it was displaced by the cassette tape. And then the compact disc. And by the 1990s, a new technology was disrupting popular music, the MP3 file. And with it, an innovative way of distributing music, the internet. In 1994, the music industry promoted the digital distribution of a Rolling Stones concert from a stadium just a few miles from the abandoned old Univac office. Four years later, so much popular music was in free circulation that the sales of CDs, the dominant format, began their slow decline. The child of the 1990s, who expressed a desire to own a record store or perhaps a radio station, was gently guided towards a more plausible career, such as a professional soccer player or Starfleet commander. Or podcast host. Or podcast host. In that distant December of 1958, all of those changes were invisible to the small staff of the Dallas Univac office. None of them could see how their $2 million machine might be transformed into a driver of the music industry. Many of them were quietly looking at other job possibilities. Within the year, John Kamena would take a job in data processing in San Francisco. The rest would eventually follow his path. But on December 24th, they ended the day with a party that gathered around a small tree in the machine room. The Dallas Times-Herald article was passed from hand to hand as the UNIVAC laid its full repertoire of carols. As they listened to the machine play its songs, they would add their voices to the chorus. In that dark night, they stood on Jordan's distant shore and sang songs of the heart. They sang for themselves, and they sang for their business. They sang for their women at home and their babies tucked um, safely in bed. Don't you think you should explain that one woman was your mother and that one baby was you? And who's going to have to talk about public embarrassment tonight? They sang, blissfully unaware that 60 years hence, the best-selling computer would do nothing but play music. And that that computer would quickly be replaced in its short term by yet another innovative machine. But on that night, they sang with pride in their hearts and the hope that 1959 might be a better year. They sang into the dark the songs of comfort and joy. That night, they sang songs of comfort and joy. Innovation. Such a story. Just 